according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here this morning for the purpose of growth. Turn your Bibles as we get started to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. I want to deal with the issues that bring this episode to a close that are recorded in Mark more clearly than in Matthew or in John. They're not really recorded in John at all um, and kind of sketchy in Matthew. So I want to really deal with it here in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. And this should bring this episode to a close. Before we begin, though, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest is equipped to handle the word of God. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together and to receive instruction. We look to you, Father, to meet the needs of uh, this ministry. And, Father, this week certain things have opened up that we're praying over. And we are asking for every believer that's associated with this ministry, both locally and uh, wherever they may be listening on the website, Father, to be in prayer for our wisdom that uh, we might... Uh, seek seek your will and seek what your wisdom is for uh, the needs of this ministry and our expansion and Father uh, parking needs and seating needs and everything else that's in your hands and we thank you for it in Jesus Christ's name we pray Amen. All right, as we mentioned on Sunday, the uh, property across the fence will be becoming available probably in the next thirty to sixty days. It'll be on the market. Kind of like to be able to get it before it goes on the market if uh, we might be able to work with the family there. Uh, in any event, that's uh, that's in the Lord's hands. All right, Mark chapter six, verses forty-five through fifty-two. The event itself, uh, where Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him. He himself uh, sent the crowds away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, it doesn't say here that he got any sleep. It, he was up on the mountain praying. And when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. So many details here in Mark that are really vital. We've talked about his intentions. We've talked about how we have to change our intentions if circumstances come up later on that bring us more information. And uh, then, of course, they see him, and they're afraid in verse 49. When they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, I am, stop being afraid. The three facets of the exhortation there in verse 50. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. Now the stopping of the wind was not the only thing that happened there. Let's outline it for you. And I'll just skip on ahead. We're almost to the end of our slideshow here. We talked about Peter's faith. That's recorded by only by Matthew and the issues there. Oh, you of little faith. And that's where we ran out of time. Why did you doubt? What went unstated was you, plural, of no faith. Why are you still in the boat? Peter was the only one that got out of the boat. Now, when the Lord stepped into the boat, the following things took place. Have I given these to you yet? Under point F, one, one through five. Okay, then we'll give them to you here this morning. Uh, first of all, he entered the boat only upon the disciples' willingness to receive him. John six twenty one. 
He entered the boat only upon the disciples' willingness to receive him. John 6.21 makes that clear. I think the Matthew reference likewise makes that pretty clear. We can pull these up here and get to my synoptics. I think I saved it at this chapter. But again, point one, he entered the boat only upon the disciples' willingness to receive him. Could he have entered the boat prior to that? Obviously, he could have, but he chose not to. The um, There's Peter getting out of the boat in the Gospel of Matthew account. And then you have little faith, why did you doubt when they got into the boat? Verse 32. So it doesn't highlight the willingness of it there. Mark does not highlight the willingness of it there. It just says he got into the boat in verse 51. But in John chapter 6, he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Notice verse 31. So they were willing. They were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So there's an interesting phrase. They were willing to receive him into the boat. So he entered the boat only upon the disciples' willingness to receive him. It's similar to the Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Context, is that a salvation passage? No, it's not a salvation passage, but it is a fellowship passage. And it demonstrates the willingness of the disciples to obey, to lay aside their fear, to acknowledge him and to allow him to come into the boat where they were. The wind immediately stopped. Obviously, it's not a natural wind then if it just stops just like that upon... uh, the uh, uh, arrival of the Lord, Mark, uh, Matthew 13:32 and Mark 6:51. So subpoint two, the wind immediately stopped. Not a natural wind. What might it be if it wasn't a natural wind? Might be angels. We're told that the angels are themselves winds. He makes his ministers winds and his angels a flame of fire. Some winds are not meteorological phenomena of atmospheric conditions, but they're actually uh, angelic beings who, when they interact with the physical universe, uh, have a rather breezy, uh, breezy effect that takes place. All right, so the wind immediately stopped. Thirdly, the boat and all occupants were teleported to their destination. We read, just read that in John 6:21. The boat and all occupants were teleported to their destination. Again, the reading in John chapter 6 is that they found themselves docked. They found themselves at the port where they were trying to get to all night long. Which begs the question, it makes you wonder, what was the nature of this storm? So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So, another miracle. Sometimes, I mean, you could classify that as a separate miracle, couldn't you? The instantaneous teleportation from one place to another, you know, like Scotty beamed me up and you're not here anymore. Now you're up there on the Enterprise or or now instead of being in the middle of the lake, now you're at the shore. That would really improve my commute, actually, if I could (laughs) go from Jollyville to Crestview, just like that in the different neighborhoods of Austin. Yeah, yeah, I don't believe tollways accomplish this. This is... uh, this would be the ultimate answer to our transportation uh, crunch. I mean, when you think about it, this would clear all congestion and all traffic jams and all highways. You just teleport from place to place. Now, we'd probably find that there's a teleportation bottleneck in whatever teleportation pipeline gets you from place to place. Fourthly, the disciples were astonished. 
and they were astonished as a consequence of their hardened hearts. Now we have some vocabulary to examine here in verses 51 and 52. You might even put a second parenthesis, it's not on the board, but you might put a second parenthesis in your, in your note under point four. The twelve were astonished, Mark 6.51, as a consequence of their hardened hearts, Mark 6.52. So the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. Why is that? Is it because they viewed a divine activity, but they were viewing the divine activity with human viewpoint? That perhaps if they had been in a human in a divine viewpoint way of thinking to begin with, then the miracle of getting them to the land would not have been so astonishing. They might have been just simply slightly astonished instead of utterly astonished. All right. Again, coming back to our text, Mark chapter 6 and verse 51, he got into the boat with them, and they were utterly astonished. The expression there in verse 51, existenta. I can pull it up for you if you want the word study on it. From existemi. And we'll even bring up a uh, Strong's number for those of you that want to do the Strong's numbers. There we go. Number 1839 is your strongest number. Existemi, the coin A by form. Let's see. We'll link these together. Used 17 times in the New Testament. Translated as to be amazed, to be astonished, uh, to be beside oneself. Now, histemi is a verb that means to stand. And you've got a lot of compounds of histemi. Prohistemi is the compound to stand in front of, you know, the pro prefix. So prohistemi is what pastors are commanded to do, to stand in front, and sometimes it's translated as leadership or to lead. Exhistemi, if you think of exo being exit, out, exhistemi is to stand outside of, literally to be beside oneself, right? If you are standing beside yourself because you stepped out of yourself and now you are utterly beside yourself, it kind of gives a vividness to the idiom that you are so astonished you are uh, wondering, you're amazed, you're kind of out of sorts. And so it's, to be beside oneself is really kind of a neat idiom to render the ex-istemi aspect of it. So you get kind of a vivid word picture on it there. Some different uses of it, Septuagint uses in, in Joshua 10.10, Judges 4.15. Uh, if some of these are, are uh, well known to us, then I wouldn't mind looking at some of them. Luke twenty four twenty two in the Gospels. Some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning. And then Acts chapter 8 and verse 9, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. When it's used intransitively, in other words, when it doesn't take an object, uh, it means out of the sense uh, to become separated from something or to lose something, emerges the psychological sense of uh, being out of one's normal state of mind. See, you can be impressed, you can be amazed, or you can be so struck by something that you're out of your mind. That's where they were. Of inability to reason normally, to lose one's mind, be out of one's senses. Examples of that including Isaiah 28, 7. Also, these reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. 
The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. Mark 3.21. When his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. Remember when even his own family members from Nazareth were ascribing that to Jesus, thinking that, well, he's lost his mind. He's out of his senses. So that gives us the vividness then for, uh, I'll minimize these. That gives us the vividness then for what it's talking about in Mark 6:51, where he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. Why? The explanation comes in verse 52. For, in explaining that utter astonishment, they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Their heart was hardened. Now, I asked you last week, these guys are believers, right? All right. Believers with a hardened heart. Because there's a lot to study in terms of a hardened heart and what causes a heart to be hardened. And we'll be uh, breaking that down for you to main point six. And as we have time to go through some of the scriptures there, uh, I hope that we'll be able to uh, to break down some of the issues uh, when you think hardened heart, what's the first passage comes to your mind? Hebrews passages, okay. What else? Pharaoh, very good. Pharaoh's an e- excellent example of the hardened heart. In fact, that's the one that's taught to teach the original story in, the, in Exodus and then to bring into application in the New Testament. That's the one that's most often cited. All right, and we will give you the word study on uh, Porao here. Um, we'll break that down for you in a moment. I want to get back to the subpoints here. Yeah, porao is the word that we'll look at here in a moment. So, when he stepped into the boat, the following things took place. First of all, he only entered the boat when they were willing to receive him. Secondly, as a consequence, the wind immediately stopped. Thirdly, they were teleported to their destination without having to travel the distance in between. And uh, in that might start to spark some thinking in our way as well, because if we're looking at it in human terms, we're only thinking about what we can accomplish. If we're in the middle of the boat and we're trying to get there, how is that going to happen? Well, we're going to have to row or sail, or somehow we're going to have to travel. That's through our own ability. But when we recognize that God has ability beyond anything we can provide, then we realize that the means that he chooses to get us from here and there may not be what we would expect. And that's part of what's going into our thinking in terms of this property across the fence. We look at the property across the fence. We realize, okay, it's for sale. And we start to think in human terms, how can we purchase that property? And we start to think about our means. Either we've got to row or we've got to sale, right? Either we've got to take out a corporate loan or we've got to uh, find the resources somehow to pay for it and so forth. And we're thinking about human terms. And we're not considering the, the alternative means by which the Lord may get us from one point, from point A to point B. And it may be something that never would have dawned on us. It may be something that just all of a sudden drops in from divine provision. Uh, a believer and a donation or some kind of motivation says, here you go. Buy the house across the fence and make a parking lot out of it. <laughs> all right. That is in the Lord's hands. And we want to, in our prayers, include the, the things that we can consider, the things that we can think. 
But at the same time, we want to recognize that the one who answers our prayers, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, is the one who does exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. And that he may have a provision for us that is something we never even considered, something that never entered into our imagination, because uh, we're the finite, puny creatures that we are. And so the being teleported to the destination really, I think, speaks volumes in, in illustrating what we're talking about. So the twelve were astonished as a consequence of their hardened hearts. We'll have more to say on that here in a moment. Then ultimately the last, when they finally came to their senses, the disciples worshipped God the Son. They finally put it together, you truly are God's Son. Matthew fourteen thirty-two. Matthew fourteen thirty-two. So when they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. They worshipped God the Son. And you wonder, how did they not know that before? How did they not know that before? We read in the in the Greek, the ones that were in the boat worshipped, proskaneo, worshipped him, saying, Alethos, truly. Alethos, truly. It's an adverb modifying the verb to be theos huios a. You are God's son. But they started off with the alethos, truly. Like we have aletheia for truth. We have alethes for true. Alethos is the adverb, truly. Did they think he was lying to them before? How did they not know it was the truth? He's not yet given them the I am the way, the truth, and the life message yet, but they, they should have known that he speaks the truth. Why is the truth of his identity finally sinking in? And again, are they believers? Yes, they're believers. See, but they're immature believers. And they're believers trying to get a handle on a greater understanding than they've ever had before. And in the process of trying to gain that deeper understanding, um, they've got some doubts along the way. They've got some fears along the way. They've got some issues along the way. It's part of what it means when it says work out your salvation with fear and trembling is that in the, in the maturing process of taking us from babyhood to adolescence to maturity, we have some skepticism. We have some doubts. We have some puzzlement where we can't exactly put it together. And I think we're seeing that, uh, seeing that described there. And even to where do we question truth? Is that somehow wrong with us if we question the truth of, of things in the Bible? If we question the truth of a Bible class, or we question the truth of a, of a doctrine that a, that a human being is teaching us in, a, in, a, in an earthly room? No. We're to be noble-minded like the Bereans, search the Scriptures diligently, see if these things are so. If a Scripture has, is, is leaving us scratching our heads and, and, uh, and, and maybe with a little bit of fear, well... What do the other scriptures say? Let's put scriptures together with scripture. Let's bring all the scriptures to bear and, and harmonize them, synthesize them, get a complete picture. Not just allow one particular aspect of a, of a study to, uh, to bring us that kind of fear. All right. Which takes us then to point six. And the last thing we want to get out of the uh, Walking on Water episode. This lesson was necessary because the twelve failed to learn from the feeding of the five thousand. This lesson was necessary. What lesson? The, the, the whole fear lesson. The whole middle of the night lesson. The whole waste your time rowing across the lake lesson. It was necessary because the twelve failed to learn from the feeding of the five thousand. And they were the very ones that were holding baskets. 
and and taking baskets back and forth and feeding the people. They were all seated seated on the grass, and and the Lord was multiplying the loaves and sending them out. And uh, the disciples, the twelve, they were going out and 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 uh, distributing the bread, coming back, getting more, going out, distributing bread, coming back, getting more, going out, and so forth. And and by the time they were done, and they gathered up all the leftovers. They had the twelve full baskets that were full of the leftovers. And what did they learn in that process? Nothing. Nothing at all. See. So if you're a Bible teacher or Sunday school or adult classes or whatever you're doing and you teach a class and you think this class is really going to make an impression, it may not make any impression. It may just, there it goes, over their heads, gone. Again, verse 52, they had not gained any insight from the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Circumstances that may keep a believer from growing. Carnality that keeps a believer from growing, as, uh, as was the case in the Corinthian church. Uh, we know that there are incidents in our, in our walk that will hinder our prayer life. If I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear me. You have a brick wall prayer life if you approach it on a, on a continually carnal basis. Likewise, Bible class. What do you get out of Bible class? If you're approaching Bible class on a continually carnal basis, see, well, we see it described here. The hardness of heart is causing the uh, the insight to be uh, to be diminished, causing them to not see. Let's break this down. They had not gained insight. Sunakon is the aorist form of the verb suniemi. So subpoint A, they had not gained insight. You want to come to Bible class and you want insight. Now, what does that have to do with knowledge? Well, <laughs> knowledge will supply insight if you gain the facts, if you gain the information. But can you gain information and facts and not accumulate any insight as to what to do with those facts? Of course. This is the first step towards the full knowledge, the first step towards the wisdom. So they had not, they had not gained any insight. Explanatory gar. I love gar. Gar is a big marker in the text that is usually uh, translated for in the English language, but it is a for that is bringing an explanation in terms of what has just been given. They were utterly astonished for, by way of explanation, in order to describe why they were so utterly astonished, they had not gained any insight. And it's an aorist of Suniemi. Suniemi. That's a wonderful compound all on its own. Number 4920. Um, soon is a prefix that means together. Soon or soon like synchronize. If you have chronos for time and then soon chronos, synchronize. Uh, so I have a certain time on my watch. Sean, you have a certain time on your watch, and we synchronize those times so that when I say I'll be somewhere at a certain time, we're, we're right there, we're clicking. If, if we're not synchronized, if our watches are, are off by a few minutes or more, well, then we may get mad at each other for not being there at the, same, at the time we said we'd be there. I said, well, I said I'd be here, and, well, you know, you're, you're late. No, I'm not late, I'm early. So you've got to synchronize. The prefix soon. Uh, the, the term of sympathy is uh, another synchronizing, only it's not a synchronizing of time. It's a synchronizing of passions, pathos. And so you synchronize your passions with sympathy. When you have the same feeling for somebody else, I say synchronizing of your passions. 
Well, here we have a synchronizing of your understanding. In other words, you're putting it together. A lot of times you can get information, but you're just not putting it together with anything else to make any sense of it. So they they understood that that people were being fed, that 5,000 were being fed from five loaves and a few fish, but they weren't putting it together with other miracles that he'd done or with other statements that he'd made or the teaching that he was giving that night. They hadn't put it together with the manna provision from the Old Testament or the, the ministry of Moses or anything doctrinally they were supposed to put together with it. To them, it was just it was just an activity. It was just a miracle. It was a way of showing off. It was a way of demonstrating his power as a way of gaining popularity in a, in a region. They hadn't put it together and they hadn't recognized his provision as the bread that comes down from the father. They hadn't put it together. And so they needed, they needed a shock. They needed to be scared. They needed this Bible class here in the dark and night in the storm, in the middle of the lake, they needed to come to recognize that truly you are God's son. And this is what it took to, to put it together. See, so if you're teaching a Bible class, Sunday school with the kids or, or some kind of Bible class going on, and you think this is really going to make an impression, right? Like feeding 5,000 with a few loaves of bread, you think that's going to make an impression. And it may be that the very people who it should make a big impression to, they don't put it together. It makes no impression with them at all. And if that's the case... If there's a hard-heartedness at work there, then there's more pressing issues that have to be dealt with. Before they can even put a Bible class together, they've got to deal with their carnality. They've got to deal with their hardness of heart. So that becomes a priority of teaching. Their heart was hardened. Their heart was hardened. Hey, cardia autone. And it's interesting, cardia is singular, and yet it's, desi- it's described as the plural autone, the heart of them plural. As if the disciples, as if the twelve have a collective heart. And I'm still chewing on that. <laughs> Alright, I'm still chewing. It doesn't say their hearts were hardened, were hardened, as in each individual heart of each disciple. But it says their heart, singular, was hardened, and uh, as if it's a collective heart for the group. And I'm still working on that. There's, there's some linguistic things to, to study in that regard, idiomatically. Uh, but I'm also considering the nature of a corporate body, where we are supposed to be of the same mind toward one another. We are supposed to be of one heart, of one mind, of one soul, of one purpose. And so, in that respect, can we say that there is a heart of Austin Bible Church? That there is a collective heart that represents the spirit of this ministry? And can that heart then be hardened, having an effect on the individual members thereof? Just throwing some concepts out to pray over and consider and chew on, and just letting you know these are the things I'm chewing on. I can't observe from the text here, though, that it is a singular heart of them, plural. The autone is plural. So autone hey cardia is their heart. One heart that is uh, possessed or owned by uh, the plurality there that's in the boat. Peperomene. There's a mouthful. Peperomene. Sounds like a pizza. Peperomene, right? Pep. O, ro, mene. 
The perfect passive participle from the verb porao. The verb is porao. P-O-R-O-O. Porao. A mixture of long O's and short O's in that verb. Porao. Number 4456. In the perfect, you duplicate the first uh, consonant. That's why we've duplicated the, the pi right there. Peperomene. Now, I love the perfect passive participle. The perfect passive participle is my favorite point of grammar in the Greek language because it refers to a past completed event with present ongoing results. And the past completed event is not one you did. The past completed event is one that somebody else did and you received the benefit. You received the effect of the verb. This is the for by grace you have been saved participle. Past completed event. You didn't do it. It happened to you. And the present ongoing results, uh, by grace, you have been in the past a saved one and continue to be the saved one that you are. This is what we have here. A past completed uh, act with present ongoing results. It's a perfect passive participle from porao. So their hearts, their heart, I'm sorry, their heart had been in the past hardened with the present ongoing results of that hardened heart causing their utter astonishment and their lack of insight their heart had been hardened as i say perfect passive participle and it's my favorite construction and one that is uh lots of fun to go ahead and just do uh do searches of perfect passive participles and find them throughout the scripture and you find the great encouragement that our salvation uh has in that regard all right point c the danger of a hardened heart was particularly strong at this apprenticeship stage of their training. The danger of a hardened heart was particularly strong at this apprenticeship stage of their training. They have a very danger at this stage. I believe it was such was the case because they had been already prior to this sent out on their own training ministry. He'd sent them out two by two. They'd gone out two by two. He'd had his ministry in their absence while they were out doing their ministry. They came back to report. He received their report. Their report was, was full of excitement. Their report was full of zeal. But the report was also full of uh, problems. This hardened heart. This inability to gain insight. This um, pride. I think when you boil it all down to it, it comes pride. And the danger comes at this stage or at various stages in the Christian walk when you are growing, when you are accumulating knowledge. But what happens with knowledge? It puffs up. First Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up, love edifies. And so what happens as they're trained, as they accumulate knowledge, as they begin to reap some, some bear some fruit, they begin to reap some ministry benefits, um, They'd been casting out some demons, they'd been healing, they'd been teaching, they'd been proclaiming the kingdom. They come back to report, they're full of this excitement and some pride about what they've done. So that when they're, they're carrying uh, baskets back and forth, I wonder, was there some grumbling on their part? Were they disappointed having come back from a teaching role to then have to go back to a servant role 
carrying baskets, serving bread. Did that shape some of the hardness of heart? Was the discouragement that, oh, we're supposed to be teachers. We could be doing miracles. Why didn't we multiply the loaves? Why are we carrying baskets back and forth, back and forth, back and forth? Why don't you just send us out and then we can multiply when we get out there? Why were they going back to him for the provision of bread? Whatever it was. All right, I, I, I'm doing a bit of speculating this morning, but the, the clear text is that, that the hardened heart was a past completed action with the present ongoing results. The present ongoing results meaning that they were unable to gain insight. Why were they unable to gain insight? They're believers. They should be able to discern spiritual things. Well, we, we recognize it's not an issue of spiritual versus natural. It's an issue of spiritual versus carnal. And their pride had brought them to that point of carnality. So this stage, and this is the point that we're observing where they've had their first training ministry. They're coming back. They've given their report. And they've got this hard heart. You think, well, goodness, how, how could any seminary student have a hardened heart? You would think they're being prepared for the ministry. Yes, they're being prepared for the ministry. And part of that preparation for the ministry includes a bit more testing. Includes a bit more angelic conflict. It includes maybe a little lowering of the hedge. It includes some aspects where their faith gets tested, where their uh, volition gets tested, where their humility gets tested. Because if you blow it here, you may find that uh, you got, you're not as close to your ordination as you thought you were. <laughs> then that's okay. Because it's a lot better to blow it here than to blow it afterwards. Because after you're ordained and after you're in a church and after you're leading a flock, then if you blow the humility test, now who are you blowing up? You're blowing up yourself, you're blowing up your family, you're blowing up your church. So it's much better to blow up here and learn from it than to uh, blow up down the road. These guys, as apostles in the church age, if they, could, if they would have blown it then, they would have blown up a number of churches. So the Lord's training them at this stage, very important. Let's look at a few of these verses. Let's start with Mark 4.41. And uh, some of these are Porao passages. Some of these are not. They're, they're different passages, I think, that relate conceptually, if not in terms of specific vocabulary. Back in Mark 4 was the first fear at sea, with the first storm where he was sleeping. And uh, they wake him up and they say, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing in verse 38? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. And they said to him, why are you? He said to them, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? That's no faith as opposed to little faith in our present study. And they became very much afraid. Isn't that amazing? He rebukes their lack of faith, which sparked an even greater fear and i wonder is that the godly fear and reverence or is this an even deeper carnal fear at this point who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him well they're going to answer it on the next uh voyage they'll answer it in the next storm they'll worship him as you truly are god's son but you kind of see the 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 process along the way where they're not putting it totally together yet who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him then, of course, over in chapter 652, where we were, let's see the next incident in chapter 8 and verse 17. 
This is uh, a later episode in chapter 8. <laughs> Verse 1, in those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves. And he gave thanks and he broke them and started giving them to his disciples. Does, does any of this sound familiar? All right. Are we, is this deja vu all over again? This is... Not the same episode that we had in chapter 6 where he fed the 5,000. This is a subsequent episode where he's feeding the 4,000. We read down there in verse 9, about 4,000 were there and he sent them away. Now, why were the disciples so clueless? When he's testing them, you know, I, I feel compassion. I should feed these guys. Why are they so clueless? All right, the, uh, you wonder who he's uh, more depressed with here at this point. Uh, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him in verse 11. They want a sign, and sighing deeply in his spirit, verse 12. <sighs> All right, he didn't do it out loud. <laughs> it was in his spirit, sighing deeply in his spirit. Why does this generation seek for a sign? And uh, so verse 13, leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, what do you dis why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you still have a hardened heart having eyes do you not see having ears do you not hear and do you not remember now there's a neat passage see hear and remember when you come to bible class we ask for us to have eyes to see ears to hear and a heart to understand but when you're after bible class you need to still have eyes you need to still have ears but beyond seeing and hearing you need to remember what you saw and you heard while you were in bible class that's a neat addition. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets did you pick up? And they said seven. And he said, do you not yet understand? <laughs> are you not putting this together? Now, if these guys are such blithering idiots, why is he sending them out on training ministries two by two? Okay, let's give them at least a little bit of break. They're not blithering idiots. They're not, um, they're not baby believers. They're not, um, they're not unqualified to teach. They are qualified to teach. That's why he's sending them out to teach. That's why he's sending them out to do the miracles. They are qualified, and yet they're having struggles along the way. And hopefully we can learn in the process of training men and, and training believers in their gift that 
um, that when you're facing the discouragements in your training, that it's not the answer is not just to give up and say, oh, well, I'm not qualified. God can't use me. That's not the case with these guys here. The case is, no, you're under conflict. And because you're under conflict, you're not thinking straight. And because you're not putting these things together, you're not walking the walk of faith. And, and what really the, the barrier was, was the pride. And we keep coming back to that again and again, causing them, they're not walking by faith. If they're not walking by faith, what are they walking by? All right, so there's our chain there in Mark 4, Mark 6, Mark 8. And uh, we see in these subsequent chapters throughout the Gospel of Mark that this is uh, the nature of it. Let's go to the epistles of Paul now in Ephesians chapter 4 and realize that we've got a process here. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. These are the equipping gifts, the gifts that will equip other gifts, the training and equipping gifts that are supplied to particular local assemblies. Obviously, apostles and prophets were for the laying the foundation of the church. Evangelists and pastor teachers are for the ongoing building of the structure of the church. That's why uh, it's been my prayer for years to have an ordained, equipped, trained, functioning, serving evangelist in a local assembly. I'd like to have a full-time evangelist in a local assembly to where uh, he's not working a, a full-time job outside the church, that uh, the church will support him and, and his family the way the uh, church supports me and my family. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. It's what Christ is doing to his disciples. He's equipping them so that they can serve to the building up of the body of Christ. We realize in the process of being equipped, these believers are going to grow. They're going to grow in ways that they were never growing before. Those that serve, those that train to serve, grow faster than those that simply don't train to serve. Those that just sit. They treat church like it's a spectator sport. Treat church like it's an entertainment, like they're there to be, to be ministered to as opposed to church, which is there to equip you so that you can minister to others. It's an entirely different attitude. The building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. And how is maturity described? To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I love this passage so much. All right. Anyway, the process of getting equipped. Let's get down to verse 17 now. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind. So given that you're supposed to be a believer, you're supposed to be in a local church, you're supposed to be equipped, you're supposed to be growing, you're supposed to be uh, in that equipping, taking your training so that you can go and minister. Given that he's talking to believers, he's telling believers, don't walk like unbelievers. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility, the vanity, the emptiness of your mind. That was Solomon's walk in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Now I understand why an unbeliever is walking in darkness, because of the hardness of their heart and the darkened, darkened understanding. But do you realize this verse is saying that, a, that believers can follow that same walk? 
have hardened hearts and darkened understandings. That's why the disciples weren't putting it together with the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And they, having become callous, prolonged hardness of heart leads to the callousness, what the colonel called scar tissue, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. The unbeliever and the hardness of heart and scar tissue can, can get caught up in every sin pattern that the unbeliever gets caught up in. But you do not learn Christ in this way. This is not the way that's learned in terms of the behavior that's learned that's fitting for church age saints. All right, and then we'll leave, we'll finish off here in Hebrews. Somebody mentioned Hebrews. Start with Hebrews chapter 2. For this reason, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard so how shall we escape if we neglect? If you neglect your Christian way of life. Chapter 3. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. And this is the, uh, the application of it here, just as the Holy Spirit says. Verse 12. In recognition of the psalm there that's cited, do not harden your hearts. You say, oh, well, that applies to the Old Testament. No, it applies to the New Testament as well. Take care, brethren, verse 12, take care, brethren, writing to believers, fellow believers, calling them brethren, that there not be in any one of you, born again believers, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. The unbelief of the believer now falls away from the living God doesn't mean you lose your salvation, but it means that you lose your fellowship and you lose your walk, you lose your intimacy. But encourage one another. Day after day, as long as it is still called today. And the, the daily application of the church age Christian way of life is so vital. You realize that in the Old Testament, they had a Sabbath. Our Sabbath is today. The Sabbath day was a day that was supposed to be focused and dedicated to divine viewpoint perspective, focused and dedicated to the Word of God, focused and dedicated to Jehovah. And for us, that is today. Day after day, as long as it is called today, let us encourage one another so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Who's exempt? Can a pastor say, oh, well, that would never happen to me? It says none of you. And um, notice we, the author here, I believe to be Barnabas, but whoever the author was, includes himself of this. We have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. What's the beginning of our assurance? Yeah, that's the first love. That's the, the, the zeal and the excitement and the passion of a brand new convert who is uh, thankful and grateful and rejoicing to be delivered from darkness, who's uh, excited to be going to heaven when they die, who's, who's, who's so uh, overcome with, with joy of their salvation. Don't lose that. Don't lose that. Well, it is said again, verse 15, Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. So we have verse 8. We have verse 10. 
I didn't read verse 10. I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart. We have verse 12. We have verse 13. We have verse 15. We have chapter 4 and verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. We realize that this is the snare. This is what can happen to believers. This is what happens when believers stop day after day listening to his voice and they harden their heart and they submit to God's anger, to his wrath, the divine discipline that comes through uh, through not growing, through not walking. All right. And if you if that becomes the, the circumstance, then you end up in a position where um, you're supposed to be teachers and you're not. Chapter five. Verse 11. We have the reference to Melchizedek prior to that in verses, uh, oh, starting with 6, taking you down through verse 10. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Hardness of heart and dull of hearing go hand in hand. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. See, they're in the same condition that the Corinthian church was in. They're spiritual babies who never grew up. They should have grown up, but their prolonged carnality hindered that. By this time, you ought to be teachers. Every time the Sunday school deacons come to me and say, we need more teachers. And we make the announcements and the Sunday school teachers are underwhelmed by the response. And I get in my mind a list of people who by this time ought to be teachers. And why aren't they? Have they not been in the Word long enough? Have they... uh, And and, and when the kids... I mean, it's, it's really a lame excuse to say, Oh, well, that's not my gift. My gift's not a teaching gift. My gift is a serving gift. I have the gift of helps. Okay, well, help us with the Sunday school. (laughs) Because any believer, I don't care what your gift, ought to be able to grow in the the maturity, in in the doctrinal maturity, to be able to teach Sunday school classes to children. It's, it's, It's so lame because every believer ought to be able to teach. You can give, can't you, without the gift of giving? Can you evangelize without the gift of evangelist? Can you help without the gift of helps? Oh, sorry, I'm a pastor teacher. I can't help. I don't have the gift of helps. Right? Can you encourage without the gift of encouragement? Of course. Every believer can do all of these activities. It's just that those with the gift are spiritually empowered to go beyond in realms that the normal believer just is amazed at. You can shepherd without being a pastor teacher. You should be shepherding. You should be shepherding your wives. You should be shepherding your children. You should be shepherding uh, younger believers uh, uh, around you you can shepherd without being a, a pastor teacher it's just pastor teachers are equipped to be able to uh, to partake, partake of that activity far beyond what not uh, believers can do they have gifts in other areas so you can teach without the gift of teacher you can you can teach from the frame of reference of maturity that comes through your own understanding of bible doctrine that is of course if your heart is not hardened, and if your ears are not uh, closed. So everyone who, uh, so 
they need milk again instead of solid food. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature. Now notice, solid food is for the mature who, because of practice. In other words, they're, they've been training their gift. They've been, they've been serving. They've been ministering. Because of practice, they have their senses, their spiritual viewpoint, trained to discern good and evil. They've been undertaking ministry of their own while being trained, serving the Lord, and fully engaged in the angelic conflict. That's what these disciples are going through. They're going through the conflict. We need to pray for those men. We need to pray uh, for the men here that are training, for pastor, teacher, for evangelist, for exhorter, for comforter, for, for every gift. If they have submitted to full-time seminary training, they need extra prayers. They just put a great big bullseye on their chest. All right. So the danger of a hardened heart we see from the Gospels, we see from Ephesians, and we see from Hebrews. Three testimonies of Scripture where believers have a snare of, of falling away from their faith, from suffering shipwreck with regard to their faith, from the hardened heart that... Even though they ought to be teachers by now, they need the baby food still. We recognize from three separate areas of Scripture that this is the, uh, the danger for believers. And that's why the Lord had to get a handle on it. All right. Our next episode then gets us into the uh, healings at Gennesaret. The healings at Gennesaret is episode 38, but we will pick that up next week. Five minutes early, but we're out of time. Any questions? Any thoughts? I used to have an instructor that would say, comments, questions, financial donations? <laughs> kind of a humorous instructor. The word for insight? Uh-huh. Yeah, Aristac uh, Aristactic Indicative from Sunni Amy, number 4920. It's a possibility, yeah. That uh, in, in, in terms of your Christian growth, there may be things that are taught that you don't get yet until something else comes together to fit with it. And there were a lot of things the Lord taught that, that didn't come together until after the resurrection, for example. Then, all of a sudden, things started to fall into place. Uh, so, there are things that it's not your fault that you fail to understand, because they have to be put together with other things. But then there are things that it is your fault, because of your hardened heart, your, your closed ears, your uh, pride that's not allowing you to listen. And that, that you are accountable for. Uh, the other things where uh, you're not accountable for because he hasn't taught you yet. Remember, you're not accountable if he hasn't taught you. But if he has taught you, you should be putting it together. So, yeah, Sunni Amy is the uh, vocabulary on that. Strong's number would be 4920. 4920. It's used 24 times in the New Testament. Uh, see, 26 times in the New Testament. King James translated as understand 24 times, once consider and once be wise. Uh, as I look at an assortment of scriptures there, I'm not, 
Oh, here's one that Ephesians 5.17 jumps out at me where it says, uh, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Put together what the will of the Lord is. See, based upon your prayers, based upon your circumstances, based upon your convictions of the word of God, based upon quite a number of issues there. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 2 Corinthians 10.12. Yeah, where they are without understanding. Um, there would be a few more that would jump out at me here, but there's here Mark 6.52. Mark is pretty common. Yeah, Mark uses it a lot. Mark 4, Mark 7, Mark 8, Mark uh, Luke, Luke 8. A lot of gospel references to it there. Acts 28.27. Quotation from the Old Testament, both from Isaiah 6.10. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and Suniyami understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. So that's the reference to it there. Yeah, and, and that ought to be. That's part of how we um, put... Line upon line, precept upon precept, a little here, a little there. The idea of, of knowledge or understanding is that we are putting together the various aspects of knowledge and doctrine that God has brought to our attention. That's right. All right, good question. All right, well, let's close in prayer and call it good. We'll come back tonight for, uh, for more teaching. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the example of the disciples. And sometimes, Father, they seem like the 12 biggest knuckleheads you could have found in all of, all of Galilee. But, Father, that's encouraging. Uh, because uh, we're pretty much knuckleheads ourselves, Father. And we see what, what the Lord can do with knuckleheads, and it's an encouragement. And I know that, uh, Father, you are utterly patient with everything that we do. And uh, none of it surprises you. None of it disappoints you. None of it uh, causes your grace eternal plan to be thwarted. We thank you that your sovereignty is so uh, omniscient and powerful that it encompasses every uh, foolish thing of our humanity and we simply thank you for being who you are only a perfect god could bring about a perfect plan with perfect results while still making use of such imperfect people thank you father in christ's name amen